This is a Sunday that uh, I uh, approach with a certain degree of fear and trepidation every, every Sunday uh, because the gospel reading which we have before us pre presents to us one of the most uh, defamed and misunderstood doctrines of Christianity. That is to say, Christianity's teaching about hell. No one likes to hear about hell. Not surprisingly, why, why would you want to? <laughs> uh, if, if you know anything about the idea uh, of hell, it's not pleasant. But it doesn't do for us to simply ignore things that are not pleasant. It's important for us to understand them. Because this world that we see, that we live in, that we engage in day to day, that we can touch and feel and handle, this physical world has just beneath the surface another dimension to it. One that has a deep and lasting impact an ongoing day-to-day -day immediate impact on our experience of this physical world, that is, the spiritual world. And it's important that we understand the spiritual principles at work here that are underlying the, this, this very important Christian teaching about hell. It's interesting to me, I, I, I like science a lot, uh, and it was interesting to me recently to, um, to run across an article which revealed to me that uh, my high school-based understanding of plate tectonics is now woefully out of date. Um, you, you've all seen the, 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 the diagrams, right? Uh, the, the Earth is, uh, 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 all the continents on the Earth, are, and, and for that matter, all the uh, plates that are at the bottom of the ocean as well, are all these, these great pl interlocking plates, which are being driven towards one another or apart from one another by forces underneath that are uh, the magma that's welling up uh, in great currents and pushing them apart or together, producing earthquakes and mountains and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it, it was, it was uh, um, and, and in the diagrams, you, generally what you see is you've got one, one they, usually, they usually show subduction, which is to say you've got one continental plate coming at, uh, at one direction and the other going in the exact opposite direction, and one is being forced underneath the other, and the one that's being forced underneath the other, you, you kind of see uh, it going down into the magma and then just kind of melting into the magma. And that's, that's about it. That, and that's as far as when, when I was in high school, the theory of plate tectonics went, which is fine. Um, but as science progresses, as we measure the various uh, earthquake waves that are going through the earth, we learn more about it. And, uh, and, and we learn more, as we've learned more about the interior of the earth, the, the theory of plate tectonics kept going even when they didn't bother to update me on it. Uh, and, and so apparently now, what they figure is that, that that diagram is actually a bit misleading. What happens when a plate is subducted is, is not simply that it uh, melts and into the sort of undifferentiating mag magmatic mass, it's, you can talk about it in those, Magma. thank you, <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's flowing underneath. But it's, it's actually, it kind of 
partially melts, and you've got this big, massive plate still that's kind of falling down very, very slowly through the magma, creating currents as it's falling, as, as anything that falls down. If you, you just like, drop a large book in the floor, you'll see air currents that are uh, generated by its fall. And it's, so it's, they're generating all these different magma currents as they're falling down, and then they, they reach a point in the, uh, in the magma which is slightly different and kind of almost skate across underneath the continents, producing various currents that go up and, uh, and so, so that the, the mountains that we see are not simply a result of, this, uh, of the forces going out uh, apart from one another, that's forcing plates out apart from one another, or of compression, where the plates are, are, are uh, subducting and pushing one another up, but also the result of all of these unseen uh, bits of uh, uh, currents of magma that are flowing up and pushing and deforming the Earth above it. Now, whether or not you buy the theory of plate tectonics, I, I like science, so I, I like to get into it, and, and it's, it's, the, it's the theory of uh, one of the theories of our day. Uh, we'll see, time will tell whether, whether it, whether it stands, stands the test of time. But whether or not you, 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 you buy into it, the basic reality that it's trying to describe is that there are forces at work underneath our feet that we know, that we can identify a little bit we can kind of measure them, we can kind of get some sense of them, and that radically have a radical and powerful effect on the very earth on which we walk. We notice it most especially in times when, when earthquakes happen or volcanoes or, or these, these, these massive disruptions of the earth. And when all of a sudden the very earth under your feet that you've been depending on to hold you up is no longer reliable and it's shaking and jittering all over the place. But, uh, but we also might notice it when we drive over the Rocky Mountains. Uh, or when, you know, you, you, we have to consider, where are we going to build this? Are we going to build this here? Oh, wait, no, it's volcanically active. Maybe we shouldn't. Um, so, so it's important to know and understand at least something about these forces that are at work underneath us. And the two basic spiritual forces that undergird the Christian understanding of hell Both show up in the parable that we just heard. On the one hand, there is the very important spiritual principle of justice. We yearn for justice. Our souls cry out for justice. Any time that we experience injustice, we're angry about it. And we want it fixed, if not by us, then at least by somebody else. And when we see that not fixed, then they get, get even more angry about it. Injustice is the force behind all sorts of political movements and attempts to revise and reform and change how the world works. And all these things are, are good in some degree, in some way, shape, or form. There's also some bad and injustice that gets in there as well, because what we find as human beings is as we are trying to establish justice here on the earth, we end up creating different forms of injustice. Uh, and, so, uh, and so even our best efforts to try and make the world a ju more just and better place 
there's always cracks that seem, things seem to fall through. There's always other messes that seem to get created, other injustices. And so this deep-seated yearning for justice that lies at, that, that we have as human beings, built into us by God, has no ultimate fulfillment here in this world. And what the Christian teaching about hell, punishment in the afterlife, uh, one of the things that it's addressing is precisely this yearning. We need to know that in the end, there will be justice. And so in the parable, as we, as, as we just heard it, there was this rich man and there's Lazarus. The rich man feasted sumptuously every single day. He had lots and lots of food. And right there on his doorstep was Lazarus, the beggar, covered with sores. The only people who paid any attention to him weren't people at all. They were dogs that came and licked his sores. Is a miserable existence. Whereas the rich man had a wonderful existence. Lots of food, lots of friends, lots of feasting. It was great. One life was one great party. This is not fair. It's totally unjust. And yet we see this all, all the time in the world. What's God going to do about it? Well, we know what he's going to do about it because we have this parable. The rich man ends up in Hades. Not quite hell, but it's, it's kind of a waiting place, uh, the grave, uh, and, and sort of in that sense, an anticipation of, what's to, uh, of, of the punishment that is to come. And he finds that he is in torment. And meanwhile, Lazarus is taken by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And when the rich man complains about it, Abraham says to him, look, you know that in your life you had good things. And Lazarus had none. He had only bad things. Now the tables are turned. Now justice is being served. One of the things that kind of frustrates me with the modern misunderstanding about hell, you know, besides all the, the, the great far side cartoons with demons escorting people to, escorting or, or orchestra conductors, great orchestra conductors into uh, rooms filled with trombone students. Uh, um, it's like, it, it, it frustrates me that, that people somehow get the impression that this is a, an injustice that God is perpetrating on the universe. The point behind this doctrine is that God is just. God is good. God is merciful. And that he will ensure that justice is served. We, this is why he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's, he's enabling us to forgive our enemies. He's enabling us to leave judgment up to him because he judge just, judges justly. As Abraham, as Abraham, the father of our faith, said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Whatever the details, whether there are you know, orchestra 
con uh, orchestral conductors being tortured by trombone students, <laughs> or whether there's something other that, uh, that, that takes place. We can trust that God being good, God being right, God being just, will ensure that justice is served. But there is another spiritual principle at work here, one that is even more sobering. And that is the spiritual principle that love, trust, belief cannot be coerced, cannot be forced. As soon as God gave our forefathers, Adam and Eve, free will in the garden, he opened up the possibility for infinite pain and suffering on his part because he loved them. And in his love for them, he gave them freedom. He gave them the freedom to choose, knowing that that also meant that they could choose not to love him back, not to reciprocate. And we know the story that has unfolded down through the ages and generations and centuries. We keep choosing not to love God who loves us. And God keeps reaching out in his love to us, offering us his mercy, offering us forgiveness, offering us true total acceptance in his love. And yet we keep pulling away. And the basic danger that is described in the Christian teaching about hell is that it is possible for us to harden our hearts and harden our hearts and harden them and harden them again until, well, as I can't remember who it was said, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe C.S. Lewis, <laughs> the door of the human heart can only be opened from the inside. And if we've poured concrete over that door and thrown away the key, then we're trapped in hell. How do we know this stuff? Well, we know this obviously because uh, Jesus taught it. But we also know this from our own experience. If you've ever loved and had that love rejected, if you've ever been stuck in sin, if you've ever been consumed by anger, you have a tiny taste of what hell is like. And the reason the church teaches about hell is simply 
to warn us. Don't go there. We're not making any judgments about who goes there or doesn't. Thankfully, that's up to God. And we know that he is good and judges justly. But the warning is extended to each and every one of us. Don't go there. And more than that, there's something else that's offered to us. <coughs> something that also appears in this parable. Heaven. Heaven is offered to us. It always has been. It's always been there. Just a turn to God away. All we have to do is open the door. However messy and horrible it is inside and say, come in. To receive the love that God is extending to us. To be defined not by anger and fear and greed and lust and all those other things, but to be defined by love. And it doesn't even have to be our own love, because that's often damaged and broken. All we have to do is receive the love of God that he is so fervently, faithfully, and so richly pouring out on us. And that's what we see again in this parable. So we saw the principle of justice at work. We saw also in the conclusion of the parable, the principle of it's impossible to coerce trust or love. The conclusion that Abraham has is like, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. But the most important spiritual principle here is that of love. That heaven is ultimately about relationships, about being connected to one another, and in being connected to one another, being connected to God, our Creator Himself. As we embrace this way of love, through forgiveness, through allowing God to judge, through allowing Him to be the just one, as we trust, place our trust and faith in God, he loves us. He brings us together, not only with himself, but with one another. Through forgiveness. Through unconditional love. And in so doing, he opens up to us the doors of paradise. The doors of a place where relationship will never die. Where there are no more goodbyes. And he says to us, welcome home. To him the glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages.